Welcome to another edition of The Disney Dish. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and this week I'm flying solo. Largely because my co-host, Len Test, is off making the world a better place by attending a medical conference. Seriously, folks. The same mathematical formula that powers Turing Plan software, as it turns out, can actually help doctors when it comes to making clinical decisions when it comes to diabetes management. Who knew, huh? Anyway, this is our show for February 18th, 2019. And I promise that Len will be back next week. But given this podcast is supposed to be posted on President Day, well, I thought it might be interesting to talk about that time in the 1990s where the Imagineers were seriously talking about pulling the Hall of Presidents out of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. And on the second half of this week's show, I thought I'd share some stories about Dave Smith, the chief archivist emeritus of the Walt Disney Company, who sadly passed away this past Friday at the age of 78. But before I talk about Dave and the Hall of Presidents, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to Disney Dish's newest subscribers, Dearest Scooter, Madeleine T., and Jeffrey S. I'd also like to give a quick shout-out to some of Len and Mai's oldest subscribers on the Disney Dish podcast. These folks who have stuck with the show for years now include Dory Gimble, Lee Stone, and Christopher Wood. Let's do a little bit of news here before we get to Mr. Smith and the Hall of Presidents. And the news portion of this podcast is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online with storybookdestinations.com. We're heading into the final week of the 2019 edition of the Epcot International Festival of the Arts. This past week, thanks to the lovely Angela Ragno and the magic of Facebook Live, Nancy and I were actually able to enjoy, from the comfort of our home out in the woods of southern New Hampshire, uh, the President's Day weekend edition of the Disney on Broadway concert series, which featured performances by Ashley Brown. She's the original Mary Poppins from the 2006 Broadway production of the stage version of Disney's Mary Poppins. And Josh Strickland, uh, he was the original Tarzan in the 2006 Broadway production of the stage version of Disney's Tarzan. As long as we're talking about Mary Poppins, I guess we should take a moment to talk about Mary Poppins' returns. Back on February 5th, during the Walt Disney Company's fiscal first quarter 2019 financial results conference call, Christine McCarthy, who's the chief financial officer of the Mouse House, uh, she talked about how the revenues from studio entertainment this quarter weren't quite as impressive as the revenues the studio was able to post in the first quarter of 2018. And that was largely because Disney's Nutcracker in the Four Realms, Ralph Breaks the Internet, and Mary Poppins Returns hadn't sold nearly as many tickets as Thor Ragnarok Coco and Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi did last year. Consequently, the Imagineers, who have been developing several ideas for ride shows and attractions for Epcot's UK pavilion that were supposed to draw their inspiration from characters and settings from Mary Poppins Returns, have reportedly been told to tap the brakes on these projects, largely because of the so-so box office for this Rob Marshall movie. Domestic ticket sales and overseas ticket sales for Mary Poppins Returns are pretty evenly matched at the moment. Stateside's current sales currently sit at $170.4 million, while overseas ticket sales sit at $171.1 million, so a mere 700000 in ticket sales separate these two totals. If we're looking at Worldwide Box Office, Mary Poppins currently sits at $341.5 million, which 
given that this Rob Marshall movie supposedly cost the studio $130 million to make, the way Hollywood does math, well, that means Mary Poppins Returns is now within inches of turning a profit for the company. Which, when you factor in what this Walt Disney production will make once Mary Poppins Returns is available on DVD, Blu-ray, and... I'm told this movie is supposed to hit store shelves on March 26th, while the digital HD version, that's supposed to drop on March 12th. Once you factor in that revenue stream, Mary Poppins Returns finally officially turns a profit for the company, just not the billion-dollar profit that execs had been hoping for. The original Mary Poppins cost Walt Disney Productions just $6 million to make, which, if you adjust for inflation, is the equivalent of $48.7 million in 2019 dollars. Back then, the North American ticket sales for Mary Poppins were $31 million, which, in today's money, that's a, the equivalent of a quarter of a billion dollars. It was this tidal wave of cash that flowed through Walt Disney Productions in the mid-1960s that then made it possible for Walt to buy all that swamp land in central Florida. Just remember that the Disneyland as a whole cost $17 million to make back in 55. These are some huge chunks of change that Walt was spending in the 1960s. By the time Disney was finally able to buy out ABC Paramount, this was July of 1960, they had to spend $7.5 million to get that 35% stock interest back. And Walt was really not happy. They had to give ABC Paramount 15 times what they'd paid him back in 1954 to finally gain full control of Disneyland. And how Walt's older brother would often say no when his kid brother came around in the late 1950s, early 1960s looking for more money for Disneyland. This really first happened in the fall of 57 when Walt was looking to build Liberty Street up behind Main Street, USA. After his kid brother made this request, Roy had the studio's accountants get him the box office receipts for Johnny Tremaine. Roy took uh, one look at how this Robert Stevenson movie... Oh, oh, by the way, for those of you who like your podcast to have connective tissue, uh, Robert Stevenson was the director of Disney's 1964 version of Mary Poppins. Johnny Tremaine was the very first film that Stevenson directed for Disney Studios, and Walt clearly liked his work. For On the Heels of Johnny Tremaine, uh, Stevenson was assigned Old Yeller, followed by Darby O'Gill, then The Absent-Minded Professor and Son of Flubber, and eventually Mary Poppins. Robert really became Walt's go-to guy when he was looking for a director who could handle a film that, that had strong story elements, but at the same time, you know, a, a picture with a lot of effects. Tremaine really didn't do all that well at the box office when it was released back in the summer of 57, which is why when Walt came around in the fall of that same year looking for money to fund the construction of Liberty Street at Disneyland Park, Roy then showed his kid brother the box office receipts for Johnny Tremaine and said, people just aren't interested in stories that are set in America's colonial period. If you want to build a, you know, a new land at Disneyland that keys off of this part of American history, it, it's probably going to fail. So, sorry, but you can't have the money for Liberty Street. Now, let's jump ahead 10 years. This is when Roy, after he comes out of mourning the loss of his little brother, and there was a full six months or so after Walt's passing in December of 1966, where Roy basically disengaged from day-to-day -day dealing at, the Walt, at Walt Disney Productions. And the company basically operated on autopilot while Roy grieved. 
there were all sorts of rumors during the spring of 1967 that Walt Disney production was going to be sold off to some huge American conglomerate like RCA, largely because Roy had been very, very public about his desire to retire right before Walt died. And the thinking was that Walt's brother, at this point anyway, was ready to hang it up, that rather than take an active role in the day-to-day operations of the company again, Roy would just opt to cash out, and so that he and his wife Edna could then spend the rest of their lives doing round-the-world cruises and spending time with their grandchildren. But Roy surprised everybody in the late spring, early summer of 67 by not only coming back to work, but also by shooing away all of the company's would-be suitors. Walt's kid brother not only announced that Project Florida was going forward, but from here on in, it would be called Walt Disney World rather than just Disney World. Not only that, but Project Florida would now become home to a lot of things that Roy had previously said no to. Things like Liberty Street or the One Nations Under God show that Walt had originally wanted to build at Disneyland, which, uh, when it initially opened at the Magic Kingdom Park in Walt Disney World Resort, was hailed as a technological marvel, not to mention a patriotic extravaganza. Almost from the moment that the Hall of Presidents opened at Walt Disney World, the company began to notice that people would visit this Liberty Square attraction once, and then they wouldn't go back. For a lot of people who visited the Magic Kingdom, they appreciated the Hall of President. They just weren't all that entertained by this Liberty Square attraction. Which is why, whenever they returned to this theme park, they'd happily revisit all of the other Magic Kingdom ride shows and attractions, but deliberately steer clear of the Hall of Presidents. A large part of the theme park going public found this place a snooze. Which is something, by the way, the Imaginators actually acknowledged in the Enchanted Tiki Room Under New Management show. The very last gag in the redo of this attraction was when the audio-animatronic version of Iago, the, the parrot character from Aladdin, would yawn, stretch his arm, and say, Well, I'm exhausted. I think I'll go over to the Hall of Presidents and take a nap. Five years previous... The Walt Disney Company actually had plans to shut down the Hall of Presidents at Walt Disney World. The thinking was then that if the company moved all of the animatronic versions of the Presidents to Prince William County in Virginia, which was where Disney was planning on building Disney's America, that small regional history park that the company was hoping could capitalize on the millions of tourists who annually visit the Washington, D.C. area, Anyway, uh, the thinking here was, no, tell you what, let's let Bob Weiss, uh, he's the guy at at, uh, WDR right now who's currently riding herd on Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, but back in the early 1990s, uh, Weiss was the senior vice president at Walt Disney Imagineering. Uh, He was the guy who was actually in charge of development of Project V, as in Virginia, the state where Disney was looking to build its history park. Anyway. In an interview that Weiss did with the winter 1993 issue of WDI magazine, um, this was back then anyway, the in-house publication for Walt Disney Imagineering, it supposedly would kept all of the folks who worked at 1401 Flower Street up to date about all of WDI's doings. Anyway, Bob said that of the nine lands that would be found inside of the Disney's America theme park, One of them would be called President Square. We are planning to redo the Hall of Presidents. 
And then all of the AA figures that can now be found in that attraction will probably move to this location from Walt Disney World. So under this version of the Disney's America plan, what was supposed to replace the Hall of Presidents at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom? How many of you remember the America the Beautiful show used to run in the Circle Vision 360 theater in the Tomorrowland section of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, uh, 71 to 74. It was then paired with another Circle Vision 360 show, Magic Carpet Around the World. And if I'm remembering correctly, the America the Beautiful show used to screen in the Tomorrowland Theater in the morning, and then in the afternoon they'd, they'd switch it over to Magic Carpet Around the World. Anyway, starting in 84, these two Circle Vision 360 movies were replaced by American's Journeys, which were in the Tomorrowland Theater from September of 84 through January of 94. So the Imaginators shut down American Journeys in January of 94 because that's when they're looking to turn this Tomorrowland Theater into the stateside home of Euro Disneyland's Visionarium show, which opened at that theme park back in April of 92. Spring of 1992, we have Visionarium open at Euro Disneyland. The Imaginators immediately see this Discovery Land attraction as something that can possibly transfer to the future that never was. Uh, that was the redo of Tomorrowland that was supposed to open at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom in the late fall of 1994. November 1993, we have the Walt Disney Company announce its plans to build a small regional theme park that will celebrate American history in Haymarket, Virginia. And the show that they're looking to transfer to Disney's America is the Hall of Presidents, which is located in the Liberty Square section of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. January 1994, we have American Journeys closed down at the Circle Vision 360 Theater in Tomorrowland section of, of the Magic Kingdom to make way for Timekeeper in from time to time. If all had gone according to plan, Disney's America would have opened up in the spring of 1998, which would have meant in order to get all of those AAA figures that stand on the stage when the Hall of President disassembled and then shipped from Florida to Virginia. So we have this plan for a revamped version of the hall. But in order for the hallway of presidents to be an opening day attraction at Disney's America when that theme park opened in the spring of 1998, that meant that the Disney World version of the attraction would have to be closed no later than the fall of 97. So, okay, you take all of the those animatronic presidents out and you ship them from Florida to Virginia, you now have this giant empty building. What are you going to do with this structure in Liberty Square? We're still talking mid-1990s here, and what's going on at the same time is that the Imagineers are in the process of developing the second gate for Tokyo Disneyland Resort. And the park that they're planning on building there is Tokyo Disney Seas. And one of the signature original attractions that's going into that park is Storm Rider, which it's basically kind of a supersized version of Star Tours and Body Wars, the, the motion-based simulator. I mean, the cab for Star Tours holds 40 people. Storm Rider, on the other hand, can hold 122 people per show. And the thinking was that if we were to take the Hall of Presidents Theater and drop two of these Storm Rider-sized motion-based simulators inside of that structure. If we abandon the idea of doing 
the 25-minute-long show and instead did an 8- or 10-minute-long film, we could get pretty much the same capacity. Hall of Presidents is a 700-seat theater. So when you run two shows an hour, you're getting 1,400 people in there if you're filling every seat. And the notion was that what if you did an 8- to 10-minute-long motion-based simulator attraction where what guests would do once they boarded this thing is they would then be flown over um, memorable natural wonders within the United States as well as man-made wonders like, say, Mount Rushmore or Hoover Dam. The thinking is that by taking this approach with redoing this Liberty Square's central attraction like this, it would immediately solve the Hall of Presidents' biggest problem, which was that nobody wanted to re-experience the Hall of Presidents because it was too boring. Plus, it would give the Magic Kingdom a brand new thrill ride with fairly high capacity, something to hype to get people to come through the gate. The other part of this was who that Disney was talking about as the possible narrator for this all-American patriot flyover attraction. The whole point of this thing is that it's basically the anti-Hall of Presidents. It's still going to be patriotic, but it still has to be sort of a thrill ride. And so WDI wants the voice of this ride to be somebody the public associates with really exciting, thrilling things. This attraction is in development in the mid-1990s, which is when Jerry Bruckheimer was just a few years into what would eventually be his 22-year-long deal with Walt Disney Studios. This is when Bruckheimer's developing Armageddon for Disney, which would eventually be released to theaters in July of 1998. Jerry, at this point, is keeping WDI abreast of the project, and the Imagineers really want to do some sort of an attraction for the parks that's based on this whole giant asteroid menaces Earth movie. They did eventually get an Armageddon-based attraction built, when Walt Disney Studios Park Paris finally opens, that theme park featured a show called Armageddon Les Effects Spatiaux. And for a time in the early 2000s, a version of this very same attraction, which was supposed to put you on the Russian space station just as it's being hit by the asteroids or smaller asteroids ahead of the big asteroid, that was actually supposed to be built at Disney's Hollywood Studios. When WDI asked Jerry, um, who's going to star in this giant asteroid menaces Earth movie, he said, well, I'm trying to sign Bruce Willis to be the lead of this film. And the Imagineers were like, oh, if you land him for that part, can you please put in a good word for us? Because we've got an attraction that we'd love to have Willis do the narration for. So picture this, a simulator ride housed inside of the Hall of Presidents, one where you flew over natural wonders and man-made wonders around the United States, while Bruce Willis provides your in-flight narration. That sounds cool, doesn't it? So what happened? Disney's America didn't happen. Almost from the mo moment that that regional history theme park was announced, it got vocal opposition from the horsey set in Virginia. Long story short, these people just did not want Haymarket or Prince William County to become the next Anaheim or Orlando. So they threw all sorts of money at a disinformation campaign about the project and tried to make Disney's America sound like this crass set of carny rides rather than, again, this small regional history park that Bob Weiss and his team had planned. And by September of 1994, the Walt Disney Company had thrown in the towel. 
And what with Disney's America being canceled, where there was no reason to come up with a replacement for the Hall of Presidents at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom? What the Imagineers did instead to try to boost the attendance level at this Liberty Square attraction was revamp the show so that the current seated president of the United States would then have a speaking role in the show. Speaking of which, I don't know how many of you are aware of Cliff Sims. He's the former special assistant to President Trump. Back in late January of this year, Thomas Dunn Books, uh, their division of St. Martin Press, they published Sims' memoirs. Sims has an interesting story to share about when the Imagineers came to the White House in 2017 to record our current commander-in-chief so they could then prep his audio animatronic figure for Walt Disney's Hall of Presidents. A Walt Disney production team came to the White House to record the president's voice and mannerisms for the animatronic Trump that would go into Walt Disney World's Hall of Presidents. This was a presidential duty that filled the president with an unusual boyish excitement. He was going to be up there on stage next to Lincoln, Reagan, FDR. An animatronic Trump would literally walk among giants. I read through the draft script for him, which included Trump discussing achievements of the American spirit, like inventing the light bulb, the internet, and the skyscraper, he interjected. You should have the skyscraper in there, he smiled. And then I went out a little, and of course, which I know a little something about, right? The Disney executives, unfortunately, didn't like that idea. How can the president claim Americans invented the skyscraper, one asked. That's just a taller building. Americans didn't invent the concept of buildings. Okay, fine. So I agreed to keep that line out of the script, and Trump never mentioned it again. Just for the record, though, the first steel structured skyscraper appeared in Chicago. So... I wonder if a copy of Sims' memoir, which, by the way, has the somewhat sensational title, Team of Vipers, is now going to end up in the Walt Disney Archives thanks to that Trump story. And speaking of the Disney Archives, I'll have some stories to share about the founder of that archive when we get back from this commercial break. As you can tell by the front half of today's Disney Dish episode, what I do here on this podcast involves lots and lots and lots of research, which is why I've always been grateful for people like Dave Smith, who effectively plowed the road for a lot of us who now work in the field of entertainment history. You gotta understand that back when Dave came on board at Walt Disney Productions, back in June of 1970, studios didn't really have archivists. I mean, just a month before Dave arrived at Disney, MGM had its infamous auction where decades of genuine Hollywood history were scattered to the four winds, sold off to speculators. Prize props like Dorothy's red shoes from The Wizard of Oz disappeared into the hands of private collectors. Whereas what Dave did is, well, he protected and preserved Disney's past. In talking with him, he once described it literally when he was starting the job. What he did is he wandered all over the grounds of the studio. He would open doors, he'd look in closets, and try to find what treasures there were on the lot that needed to be saved. And take, for example, what he found in one janitor's closet. He opens the door and he looks at the top shelf, and there, next to the cleaning supplies, are maquettes that go back all the way to Pinocchio and Fantasia. And so he quizzes the janitor who, this is where he stores his equipment. It turns out this is a guy who's worked at Disney for decades. One day, he found all of these things tossed into a trash can. 
and he decided to save them because he liked how they looked. And so they had been sitting on the shelf in this closet for a number of years, and they just gave this guy pleasure whenever he went in to get his mop or his broom. And, and Dave was like, well, could I have those for the archive? Because they're, they're actually the history of the studio. And the janitor was kind of heartbroken, but he did give them up. But that experience taught Dave that part of his job was not to just save the files and save the posters, but also to occasionally eyeball the trash containers at Disney. And sure enough, one day, he's walking around the Disney lot in the early 1970s, and he just casually looks into a dumpster. And there, sitting there in the dumpster, is a three-foot-tall stack of cells from the Aristocats that had just been thrown away because obviously production was completed and they're going to move on now to working on Robin Hood. So there's no need to save them. So Dave fishes them out, brings them back to the archive and just stuffs them in a corner for a while. And five years later, someone from Disney Consumer Products comes down to the archive and explains the studio is looking to start up an animation art program where they'll sell authentic Disney cells to art galleries around the country and did Dave know where any of the cells from older Disney films were kept? And he goes, well, I happen to have this pile of Aristocat stuff. And so he turns them over to this employee who then has them cleaned up. <laughs> they were then sold to collectors around the country for $200 a pop. Being the archivist at the Walt Disney Company was a strange job. Anyway, my own relationship with Dave, it, it dated back to the mid-80s. I was assigned to Fort Devens, Massachusetts at the time. I was a 71Q, which in U.S. military parlance meant that you were an official Army journalist. I was an entertainment writer for the Devens Dispatch. And whenever I had a story that had an obscure piece of Disney info that I couldn't quite pin down... I'd reach out to Dave, and he either graciously take my phone call or put together a polite response to my letter. And I think the first time I wrote to him, I was asking about whether Disney had ever attempted to turn J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings series into an animated feature. And Smith's response was not huge. I mean, he basically said, look, he'd heard the same rumor, but there was nothing in the files that really supported that claim. And I guess I should talk about the files. Because when I finally got on the lot and got to do actual research in the Disney corporate archives, this was back in the old card catalog days, where you physically had to go up to this little wooden cabinet that had all sorts of drawers, and you'd pull them open, and there'd be this 100 or more index cards that had been hand-typed out. And you'd go through them, find the file you were looking for, fill out the proper form, and then hand it off to Dave's secretary. And... Then she'd go into the back, and then she'd come out and hand you off the, the appropriate file. And Dave could be difficult sometimes. He didn't suffer fools gladly. He worked very hard at this job and expected those that he allowed into the Disney corporate archives to do the same, to treat Disney history with the respect that he felt it deserved. Which is why, after I spent two solid days at the Disney corporate archive, sitting at that big wooden table that sat in the middle of the room, digitally taking notes by hand about Mineral King, Dave, I guess, decided I was okay, that I, I took the stuff as seriously as he did, which is why one day he invited me to join him. He liked to walk around during lunch, and so we're out wandering the Disney backlot. And this would have been the late 1980s, if I'm remembering correctly, and this was after the downtown section of the backlot had been 
redone for Something Wicked This Way Comes. But what was interesting is as we're walking along, Dave would go from storefront to storefront and literally peer in to the windows or look through the doors. And I couldn't understand what he was doing at first, but it, it turns out, again, it's a movie studio lot. So storage comes at a premium. And so people at Disney would move things out of other buildings to make room for other stuff. And so these buildings would sort of become the overflow. And so I remember Dave would look in a window and pull out a pad and paper and then note down what was inside the storefront. For example, I remember one storefront had a bunch of those Sentry robot costumes from uh, the Black Hole stacked up. It was kind of like they were all standing at attention. Likewise, I remember Dave looking at a doorfront. There was a packing crate in there and couldn't make out what it was from the outside. So he opens the door, he goes inside, he lifts the lid, he, it's filled with styrofoam peanuts, and he moves those aside. And what's down inside of this box but Vermithax pejorative, which for those of you who know the, the Dragon Slayer movie that Disney and Paramount made back in the early 1980s, this was, this was the actual go-motion puppet that uh, Phil Tippett and the wizards at ILM used to make the, the dragon fly in that movie. So I guess in the end, that's how I'm going to choose to remember Dave Smith. He was always a guy who was always on the job. He'd find these interesting bits of Disney history wherever he went. And Dave would then have to make the tough call about what got saved and what got heaved. Because Smith once told me that the point of an archive isn't to save everything but rather to just save the important things, the things that 10 years from now, 20, 30, 100 years from now, were going to actually matter to Disney fans. And Dave did a great job during his 40 years at the Disney archives. He left the archives in very good hands. Becky Klein and her team there now continue to catalog the company's history. Now, of course, what makes it very challenging these days is the Walt Disney Company is now so much bigger than it was back when Dave started the archives back in June of 1970. But what's helpful here is that Pixar Animation has its own corporate archives up in Emeryville. Likewise, Lucasfilm and, and Marvel. The Walt Disney Animation Studios has his own, geez, they used to call it the morgue. I think now they call it the Animation Research Library. It's it's in Glendale, oddly enough, right next to DreamWorks. So I guess it, it, it's not that Klein and company have to keep track of every single thing that the Disney company does this day. But even so, what with the recent passing of Ron Miller, Disney's CEO from the late 1970s and early 1980s, and now Dave Smith, I, I just can't help but feel that there's this whole chunk of Disney history, especially that period from when Walt passed away in December of 1966, up through September of 1984, when, when Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came through the doors, the new heads of the Mouse House, that I just feel like it's kind of falling through the cracks. And that's why I, I always enjoyed talking with Dave. I could throw what I thought was the most obscure piece of Disney-related history at him. Like, for example, I remember talking or asking him about when Roy Disney was, was trying to convince the board of directors to help fund Robert Ballard's search for the Titanic back in 1978. And Dave kind of blinked at me and said, hang on, I think I know where I put the file on that. Anyway, thank you, Dave. You'll live on thanks to all the hard work you did on the Disney A to Z encyclopedia, which so many of us have in our research libraries. In fact, the fifth edition of that 
was updated and published back in November of 2016. All right, that's enough of me doing a solo act here, folks. Like I said at the top of this week's show, Len will be back from his medical conference in time for our next Disney dish. While we're talking about the other shows in the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, if you like animation, you should check out Fine Tuning, the show I do with Drew Taylor. Or if you're a Star Wars fan, you should give a listen to Looking at Lucasfilm, which is the show I do with the amazing Dan Z. If you want to learn a little bit more about Disney Direct Competition, there's always Universal Joint, the show I do with Dustin Fuse. And if you're a collector of Disney merch and that sort of thing, we just started a brand new show, I Want That, with uh, Shelley Valladolid. And if you get a chance, hand on over to iTunes and please rate and review these podcasts. That helps then spread the word about these shows that we've got here at the Jimmy Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.